0: Show
1: you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November the 17th, 2016. It is a Thursday. That means it is Jack answering your calls to the Think line. To call the Think line, just pick up your phone, mash some buttons. The buttons to mash are 866-65-THINK. 866-65-T-H-I-N-K. If you don't have letters on your mashable, touchable, touch-tone phone, whatever the hell you're using, that number is 866-658-4465. Again, we call it the Think Line because we encourage you to think for yourself here at the Survival Podcast. What are we going to be thinking about and talking about today? Well, i got a question on fixing a failed pond. Uh which just not holding water anymore. I have a question about what area of Texas would I move to, and what do I think about particularly the Houston area? A prior Ritalin user as a child and as a young adult calls in and says, this is what it's like to be on Ritalin, and this is why I don't recommend it. So you can stop bitching at me and telling me I don't know what I'm talking about when I say to get your kids off this stuff. Uh, and then could grandfathering, not the kind I am, but could grandfathering the method of uh, excluding certain groups Be used to get term limits passed through Congress. Interesting idea from Jason in PA. There's another option, too. It's called an Article 5 convention, and I'll tell you why my view on that has changed a little bit, about why that might be a good idea. Um, I have a question on exactly how supporting TSP with TSPAS works. Like, How do you do it to make sure that your stuff from Amazon actually gives us credit? It's really not complicated, but I keep getting the question, so I'll answer this one since a guy called it in. I have a question. Is Trump the strong man I predicted back in like 2009? I predicted a double Barack Obama uh, uh, win uh, before Barack was elected and a Republican uh, after him all the way back in 2008. But in 2009, I said there's going to be a strong man Republican. And the the, the mealy mouth nature, apologetic ass clownery of Obama would make people crave a strong man. Is Trump that strong man? Was I right? I'll answer that. Uh, an after-action review on raising turkeys this year. This question came at a great time as today I just went and picked up four of them butchered at my processor. And I have a Leo faced with a career decision. He wants my opinion on my thoughts about how he can continue his job and avoid a lot of the parts of it that he really doesn't like. And he actually considers himself an anarchist and a police officer. And the conundrum that creates. Uh, that's an interesting question. Then I have a great song to end things with today that will kind of uh, fit with the fact that we just ended a century and started a new one in the history segment. On that note, let's take a look at the history segment today. It is a long one, so I want to get right to it. Alex Shrugged, as we moved into a new century, has done what he usually does, bullet points of the last one called The Century That Was. Before I read all of those, let me go ahead in other news. Galveston Hurricane hits hard. Not enough people left to bury the dead, so they start cremation. Sigmund Freud publishes The Interpretation of Dreams. Interpreting dreams can be tricky because sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Max Planck formulates quantum theory. This is the idea that an electron exists with zones of probability. It's complicated. And Albert Einstein is working in a patent office. He's also working on his Ph.D. thesis. So the century that was. As we look back, we see images through a broken mirror. The beauty can be breathtaking. But the ugly mosaics of monstrous proportion draw our attention away. I'm willing to praise the praiseworthy and condemn the guilty, but I am not the final judge. Here we go. Thomas Jefferson is president. DuPont's powder mill is a booming success. The U.S. buys Louisiana territory. And Lucy and Clark set out to discover what Jefferson bought. The USS Philadelphia burns on a long fight with Arab states begins. Napoleon opposes the Napoleonic Code in Europe. He's defeated at Waterloo, but the code remains because it makes too much sense. Mr. Madison starts the War of 1812 over a misunderstanding, so the British make themselves understood by burning down Washington, D.C. There is a panic of 1819, 1825, 1837, 1857, Black Friday, and the First Great Depression, and yet I think I missed one. The Missouri Compromise establishes an uncomfortable truce between the slave and non-slave states. Religion undergoes a second revolution. The Mormons are persecuted. The Jews are freed. The YMCA brings the Bible to young working men. Charles Babbage designs the first computer. The DC motor sewing machines and the raincoat are invented. The Texas Revolution begins. Remember the Alamo. Samuel Colt patents his revolver. Some assembly is required. The telegraph wires across the Atlantic then. No wires at all. The Supreme Court decides that slaves are not people. Ex-slaves are people, but not equal people. Then they are equal people, but only as separate people. Also, tomatoes are a vegetable. No word yet on whether ex-slaves are tomatoes. In the Trail of Tears, the Indians are forced out of Georgia. Custer is massacred. The Indians are massacred, but then they can still join Wild Bill's Wild West show. Tickets are on sale now. Dear God, I wish I was kidding, but it's true. The commercialization of Santa begins Groundhog Day, Labor Day, Thanksgiving. And just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, here comes the polka. The California gold rush begins. Uncle Tom's cabin portrays slave owners as Christ killers. The Christ killers get upset. Senator Sumner is beaten with a cane. Abraham Lincoln wins the election. The South secedes from the Union. It's war. Grant wins it. Shiloh. Sherman marches through Georgia. He is sick of war. Gettysburg is a washing tears. Four score and seven years ago, and then the Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrenders. It takes longer for the rest of the South to surrender. Lincoln is shot, and a cycle of renewal is cut short. We are lost. Darwin's origin of the species makes a big impact. The Suez Canal is built. The planet Vulcan is discovered. The safety elevator, escalator, and linoleum are invented. So is the Gatling gun. It is supposed to end all fight, and it certainly does that for anyone standing in front of it. Alaska is going, going, sold. It is now a U.S. territory. President Andrew Johnson is impeached for firing one of his cabinet members. The Transcontinental Railroad is finished. Standard Oil is established. Adolf course buys the formula for a Pilsner beer, and Budweiser is a hit. Alexander Graham Bell invents the telephone. Mutual benefit societies are established. Edison invents the phonograph, light bulb, and is promoting D.C. current. P.T. Barnum starts a circus. The four-stroke engine is introduced. The first automobile is built, Dunlop Pneumatic Tires. The Bosch engine system and the diesel engine are invented. The second scientific revolution begins when it is proven there is no ether carrying light waves along. George Eastman introduces the Kodak box camera and roll-up film. The film industry is born. The plague bacillus is discovered and heavier-than-air flight is proven to be impossible. Now it is a race between the Europeans and the United States to scoop up all the territories from lesser people just to help them out, you see. Everyone seems to be walking through a dreamland and going to take a War of the Worlds event to wake everybody up. It's coming. It's coming. The entire world is changing again. <sighs> That's the 1800s, folks. And you now know probably more about the 1800s than a lot of people coming out of school with a history degree Thanks to the contributions of Alex Shrugged. And think about that laundry list when I play you today's song at the end of the show. Now, before we get to your first call, let's go ahead and take our two, uh, hear from our two sponsors of the day, and we'll go straight from that into our first call, and I'll come back and answer that caller. Hey, guys, if you're like me, you want the best quality water for yourself and your family, this is why I've used a Berkey water filter for over six years in my own home. But if you're going to get a Berkey, or parts for one you already have, you should deal with the best, and that's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. There's only one official Berkey guy, and you can only find him at his website at directive21.com. Again, directive, the number is two, one and a dot .com. You know, guys, I've been telling you about how Safe Castle Royal has everything for your prepping needs for over seven years now. Everything's a big word, but in this case, it's true. Of course, they have long-term storage food, water purification equipment, shelters, solar and wind components, and more. But hey, did you know they even have an amazing fold-down, bug-out bicycle? Yeah, they actually have two of those. For everything you could ever need as a prepper, and I do mean everything, check out safecastle.com today.
2: Hey, Jack, this is Gary from Central Florida. I've been a listener for about five years, and this is my first call. I bought a home about a year ago on 10 acres. After some large rainstorms, storms, I noticed some water pulling up on the property. I decided this would be a great place for a pond. I got an excavator, and I basically just dug a hole. It was good for about three months, but now it's become bone dry. It's not a very large pond. It's probably about 15 by 15 feet and probably about 5 foot deep. Uh, where can I go to learn to try to revive this area or seal this pond, or do you have any tips on small pond establishment? Uh, Look
1: forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Okay, so the fact that it held water at all tells me there's probably a decent amount of clay content there, but because all you did was dig a hole, um, in time what you ended up with is it dried, it would crack, and as it cracked it would leak and it wasn't sealed properly. This probably means that had you reserved your clay, formed your pond, then lined and compacted it with clay, you probably would have been okay. But you didn't, and doing that now is is difficult. The, the good news is since it's small, there's there's actually a lot of choices you have into fixing this, this pond. The easiest, find a source of bentonite, and you want to come up with uh, an amount of bentonite that you need to purchase that would, since this thing has held water before, probably give you about a two to four inch coating of bentonite. And when you get your bentonite, you want to rent a skid steer. And I can't remember what the attachment's called, but there's an attachment for a skid steer that kind of looks like a, it looks like something you'd use on a tank to, to find mines. It like spins really fast and it churns up the soil and it mixes the soil up. Hey, maybe it's called a mixer. I don't know. And then you take your bentonite and spread it out. And then take that skid steer, and and you want to do this when it's dry. Because bentonite, when it's wet, is a freaking mess. You want to make sure you're bone dry the day that you do this. Spread your bentonite out if you're buying it in bulk. Spread it out with a skid steer if you're buying it in sacks, which is an option at this small of a pond. Just spread your bags out evenly. Go through and you know hit them with a shovel and dump them out like they're dry concrete. And just go through there and just churn that shit up with that attachment on that bobcat. Then take it off or lift it up and just run your bobcat tracks back and forth, back and forth, and compact it. It will seal and you'll have no problems. That is the surest, most definite way to do this. Um, your next method is if you can locate a source of clay, a local source of either red or black clay, either one that's pretty much a pure clay that they're trying to get rid of. This is something that can often actually happen. There's places where they've done excavating and it's like just a, the area is just full of clay. And they need to get rid of some of the material and nobody really likes clay for fill because it's clay. And then you could just basically spread that out and compact it and it should work, but I can't, and you may want to go ahead and churn it and then compact it, but I can't give you the same guarantee with bentonite. Okay. Bentonite, a lot of people try to say that bentonite is like just the same as any clay. It is not. It is an incredibly unique type of clay in how it works and how much it expands. Okay, Those are two methods. Then there would be the cheap redneck method, or we maybe we'd call it the, the Jeff Lawton permaculture method, that will probably work, but take more time. For this, you're going to need portable fencing and ducks. And you're going to put your ducks, and you're going to keep them in conditions you normally wouldn't, overstocked and slowly expanding. And you are going to put them in the center of your pond with... uh, portable fencing around it and you're going to feed the crap out of them and they're going to crap the crap out of it. You're going to keep the area wet and you're going to keep the area wet. You're going to say, let's keep 50% of the area with water and 50% of the area not quite in water yet. And you'll fill it with a hose or naturally it'll fill as it rains. And you're going to keep expanding your fencing, your portable fencing so the ducks always have a dry place they can get away from this. And they're going to keep shitting it up and packing it down and shitting it up and packing it down and shitting it up and packing it down and eventually you'll end up with a sealed pond. It's not a guarantee though. It's a guarantee that it will work but it's not a guarantee that it's going to work based on how you do it. I'll tell you what I don't like about this method. When ducks are kept in water like this for too long and they're constantly defecating without being changed out, without them being moved, they can get things like avian cholera and it can wipe your flock out and it's not a good thing. However, you could do it, and maybe nothing bad will happen at all, okay? So it's it, it's a choice. You could do this with pigs as well, putting pigs in there to wallow around, and then just keep giving them more and more space and expand from the middle out. So they pack it, they smack it, they poop it, they they slather it up, right? So you could do that too. Um, it, it's up to you, all right, if you want to try to do the livestock method. Here's another method. This would be the glee method, and it, this will work, but... It may cost more even though it seems like it's going to cost less at first unless you have a really good supply of manure that's cheap or compost that's cheap, right? If you can get cheap compost enough to lay down about a 4-inch layer of compost spread it out evenly, you don't really pack it down. It's kind of a loose layer. Seed it. You want to do this in the early, early summer. This is probably your best time. Seed it with buckwheat and irrigate it enough to make sure that buckwheat grows. Let that, that buckwheat in compost like that is going to get up to, like, two feet tall. When it gets up to two feet tall, roll it over, right? So you take your, your bobcat in there and just, just drive over it, real, you know, drive in a you know, spiral circle inward. Do You want to just fold it. You don't want to tear it up. You just want to fold it flat, okay? And once that's – got a huge amount of green biomass in there. Then you need another two- to four-inch layer of compost or manure manure would be best to put it over top and then pack that what's going to happen is all that green material is going to go to a slime and you're going to get what's called glee and that glee will and that will work that will work but by the time you get enough material to do that with you probably could have just bought the bentonite so of all the methods the one i most recommend is the bentonite and i'm sorry i cannot remember the name of the attachment for the bobcat slash skid steer but what, you, what it does is it, it, it just mixes dirt. It looks like a, a it looks like some kind of thing you you used to see in a horror movie, like you tie people on the ground and just grind them up with it. It spins really fast and it just it goes on the front like where the bucket would be and it just churns the dirt up. If you just this is see this is the mistake I made. I just coated my pond with the bentonite. It holds, but then the bottom is like gunky bentonite. If you churn it into the existing soil, you get a much more stable bottom. So you can learn from my mistakes. So those are all the methods that I know to seal a small pond. There would be one more, and it might actually be, in your size range, something worth considering. Uh, You could get a a rubber-fabricated pond liner and line it with rubber. That'll just absolutely work. I don't like that. I don't like the way they look. Most of them have like a 25-year life expectancy, what have you. If I did that, I have to tell you I would make sure that I covered – the pond liner with soil so that it was buried and you didn't see it. Now, that'll bring me to one more method that I've heard for doing this. If you have any kind of filled dirt, you can do this. Um, It was in, I think, (sighs) Backwoods Home Magazine or one of those magazines, like it might have been Mother Earth News. Guy built a pond about the size of yours, and all he used to line it was basically plastic, like painter, like the heaviest painter's plastic he could get. He did like he dug his hole with an excavator. He did like four layers of it and put dirt on top of it. The other thing that he did though is he got a whole like I said with the buckwheat. He got a whole bunch of green material and laid it on top of the plastic, then put the dirt down. So you had the plastic plus glee. I don't know how permanent that would be, but I'm throwing it in there at the end because I have one, at least one documented case of it working. That's all I got on Seal Ponds, guys. Hope it helps. Let's take another one.
0: Hi, Jack. It's Alex, longtime listener from the Soviet Socialist Republic of New York. My question is simple. If you had to move back to Texas, where would you move to? Uh, more background, we are thinking about moving to uh, Houston. I am in a financial field and my wife is in medicine. So I think that would be a good place to, uh, move to. Thank you. Bye.
1: So I do live in Texas and have for like the last three and a half years. Uh, we did have our brief trip to Arkansas. So I assume you meant if I had to move here again and had to pick a place, where would I go? Uh, but though again, sometimes people that are coming into the show at different times, start listening to older shows and think I'm still in Arkansas. So if anybody's under that illusion, I'm not still there. Uh, I am here at Nine Mile Farm in the North Texas area near Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, So let's talk about Houston. Here's some things I love about Houston. The climate, Uh, it rains there. It is a good, Southeast Texas in general is a good place for homesteading. It is the fourth or fifth largest city in America by population over 2 million, they have no zoning within Houston City Limits, though I don't necessarily think I would live within Houston City Limits, but that is good if you have other uh, plans. Um, your profession, your wife's profession, there are plenty of opportunities in Houston, the surrounding suburbs, etc. So from a standpoint like that, it's, it's, it's very good. You are an hour from driving down to Galveston to have access to the beach if you – Find the right place on the south side of Houston, which is a little tougher because there's some bad areas on the south side. But if you can find the right area that works with where you work and for your desires, you're even closer because you don't have to go through Houston to get there. On the north side, you've got like the Conroe area, Lake Conroe. You've got National Forest down there, State Forest. I'm sorry. Uh, Sam Sam Houston National Forest. National Forest. It's it's open to public hunting. Um, The soils are good. The rainfall's good. The winters are mild. It's a great place, other than I don't like big cities. Of course, I live next to one, too. So it would be high on my list. I could definitely say that I can see a lot of advantages to Houston. And I can tell you that when I used to work the Houston market as um, is, is a sales rep, and not only dealing with people professionally, but dealing with people personally just being there so much, I like in Houston more to the, not in size, right, as far as business opportunities and all, but in, in temperament more to the Fort Worth side of Dallas, Fort Worth than I do Dallas. And here's what I mean. There, some people are going to be pissed about this, but if you live here, you know it's true. People are nicer on the Fort Worth side. And I think part of it is there's less, um, I guess, in-country immigrants, right? When, you, when you're when you in Dallas, you start talking to people. Where are you from? Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, California. And, and, of course, I'm for walking to freedom, so that's not always bad. But there's two different motivations for why people move to a place like Texas with a booming economy. One is because they want more freedom and more opportunity, and the other is because they had to. And when people have to, a lot of times they bring a lot of the ideas from the place that was failing that they left with them. So... You seem to get a lot more of the kind of northeastern attitude problems from people. Not that there's not a lot of nice people in Dallas, but it just seems that way. And it seems like there's more problems with inner city crime. Not that Fort Worth is, uh, is heavenly that way. But Houston, to me, <clears throat> if you stay out of the areas where there's any big city has bad crime areas, it's a lot more like that kind of big city but yet small town attitude. Like People are just nice to each other, so that's a good place to live. Dallas-Fort Worth has a tremendous amount of opportunity as well, and while Houston is the fifth largest city in the country at 2.2 million, it's deceiving when you look at Dallas-Fort Worth because Dallas is Dallas and Fort Worth and the mid-cities and a bunch of other town cities. Uh, The the, the total metroplex of Dallas-Fort Worth has like 6.2 million people. And yet, unless you live in suburban hell, it doesn't feel that way at all. And there's almost anywhere you find opportunities. Like, for you guys, like the places to look would be around Frisco, Addison, um, Richardson, Plano, all of those areas. You have areas where you can live, if you're willing to drive 30, 40 minutes to an hour, you can live very rurally and have access to all the city stuff. And that's something that I would say is true about Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, San Antonio. All of those would be your places you would look for the career opportunities, and then you have to try to massage in the other things you want. But Texas is a great state. It really is. I'm not saying we do everything right. We are certainly not the freest state in the union by a large means. But from a business and economic standpoint, we are way, way up there on the Freedom Index. The other thing that we have going for us down here is our people. Even though I just said, you know, you can have more of attitude problems on a Dallas side, whatever, people are generally nice in Texas. You know, there are some rude assholes here and there and some sanctimonious assholes here and there, but the reality is even the people that come here with that attitude, they generally lose it pretty quickly because we don't tolerate it. I guess is the best way to look at it. And, and not necessarily like you get it back, but like, oh, you're that kind of person. I won't be needing you. I won't be hanging out with you. I won't. So like, if you're that kind of person here, you generally don't have a lot of people to bother because no one will bother with you. And, and I know there's other places like that. I'm not saying we're unique that way, but I'm saying that is kind of a vibe here. Um, and I would also say like the, the the stereotypical shit about Texas being a bunch of rednecks and all and not being something. There's stereotypical asshole, you know, people everywhere, but in general. It's a very accepting population. Um, There is a lot of the religious right here, and they are not ashamed of their opinions, and they shouldn't be. But they generally are not the kind of people that won't leave you alone about it. If you say, okay, well, that's great for you, and I do my thing over here, and we're just friends, and I don't want to hear it anymore in a nice way, you don't keep hearing it. Like, if you move into a community and you meet people and they're active in their church, they're going to invite you to your church, and you say, well, thank you, and you don't go. It doesn't keep coming back. Where I've lived other places where it seems to be over the top. You can't have this thing. Now, if you like to go to church and all that, that's fine, but there's places where you know what I'm saying. Like, if you're just not that kind of person, like, they take it like something's wrong with you or they never give up because it's their mission to save you. In spite of all the televangelism that comes out of Irving... I don't see that happen very much here. I haven't. I've been living here one way or another for almost 20 years now uh, with my little sabbatical back to PA. So great state. Houston would be a good place to look. But I'd say Houston, San Antonio, Dallas-Fort Worth, and Austin. Know that you're going to lo- deal with a lot more liberalism in Austin. Okay. Whether Now, if you like that, it's not a problem. But there's a lot more of it. While the urban centers of places like Dallas and Houston vote liberal, I mean, you literally walk across the street and it ain't that way, right? There's just that, that segment, that one demographic there. Um, it's not like Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where, you know, a huge swath of the area outside of Philly is very, very Democrat. Uh, it's definitely leans toward Republican. And the further you get out, the more it leans toward libertarianism. Okay. Let's take another one.
3: Jack, yeah, this is Keith from Denver. I hope we have a good connection. If not, I'll call back. The Ritalin thing is spot on. Um, when I was a kid, I was 13 years old, good, concentrated, exactly like you said. I've already done this yesterday, so I'm bringing on me again tomorrow. Uh, so they put me on Ritalin at 14. Uh, then I gave up. I got things done, but like you said, it was one task for one task for one task. Nothing created. When I joined the military, I was obviously not on Ritalin anymore. I hadn't been on it since I was uh, 18. And when we got there, our job was AutoCAD, surveying, soil testing, concrete testing, nuclear decimeter, yada, yada, yada. Anyways, we created, my buddy and I, who's got almost the same exact mindset as me, uh, created a new guard tower for the United States Army called the H D Ellis Guard Tower. He was Ellis, I'm Raymond. Um, we also designed the IED denial device, which really it's just rebar around a culver that you bolt on. Anyways, uh, so, you know, my brain didn't recover for two or three years after I was off that stuff, and one of the psychiatrists in the Army tried to put me on it again. Um, He put me on it, and all my AutoCAD work just went out of my brain. I had to relearn AutoCAD while on the job as a sergeant. It didn't work very well, Uh, so I just stayed in a leadership position. And kept getting tasks accomplished until I got off it again, and I said, I'm not, I'll never touch that again. Um, and then it happened again. Today, now, I, I'm working, I don't know, uh, this week I put in 73 hours. We draw 2D buildings fast food restaurants in 10 hours, along with 360-degree virtual tours, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I would be able to do that if I was on. That truck There's no way. If you can't use your brain, you can get things done. You, you can accomplish, you know, cascade, D.C., but you can't do much. Anyway, spot on with the rule in. Thanks for everything you do. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. Yeah,
1: you know, I, I I'm happy to hear that in a way because it confirms what I've been saying. Um, and I, I'm always, you know, careful not to, to tread too deep into confirmation bias um, but I don't have any practical experience what is it like to take Ritalin or Adderall. I, I just know what I see in the results. And intellectually, I know they are basically methamphetamine because, well, that's what they are, right? That's how they're classified on, on the, the, the narcotic schedule. And uh, it, was, it was a very long time ago that a chiropractor I knew said, you're giving your kids meth if you're giving them this, these drugs. And you might justify it some way or another, but know that's what you're doing. Don't, don't pretend that's not what you're doing. Um, and that's always stuck with me. Now, here, here's what I want to try to say one more time. One more friggin' time! I believe there probably is a small subset of people that use these medications that it is beneficial to. So, I am ever loving sick. I am ever-loving sick of the parents that I hear from every time I talk about this all butthurt as though I don't give you that out. But I want to say something. The fact that I do give you that out and you don't take it might be telling you that maybe your kid shouldn't be on this freaking dope. I I, I, I mean, I really think... I, I got an email from somebody recently that I was going to play on Monday show. I probably won't now because it fits in with this nicely. That basically said, the reason people are on this shit is we're not... As a species, supposed to behave the way that we're behaving. Like, so the person that is ADD or ADHD or whatever is the person that's always, you know, not focused on one thing, they're focused on a hundred things. Well, if you were a band of hunter gatherers and you're moving through areas that might be dangerous, wouldn't you want some percentage of your group to, instead of focusing on point, be focused on everything? Wouldn't you really want that? The human species was not designed to sit in a chair for eight hours a day. And I totally understand how some parents make this decision, use the, the minimal corrective dose to get through the freaking reality that for many people sending your kids to government schools is the only thing you can do and it's the only way you can get it done. But don't deny what you're doing. You're trying to make a child behave in a way that a human being was never supposed to behave, and since they don't have the ability to do so, you are using a narcotic to induce that behavior, and you are reducing their potential for something else. Now, again, I'm willing to admit that in some cases, that might be a negative potential. that, that, that You might be reducing the potential for them to have negative experiences in life. But I would also say there's there's a greater chance, in my estimation, you're reducing their potential for some sort of greatness. And having difficulty is not a bad thing. That's why we have this problem. We have become so stupid as a species, we want to remove difficulty from everybody. Well, it's it's difficult for him to get through school. Well, maybe it should be, because maybe struggling through it and coming out with C's is better than going through it focused like a freaking computer and coming out with a B+. Well, how could that be? You have to go to college? No, no, you, you have to stop thinking this way, because the people that do the greatest good for humanity all come from some point in their life where they had to struggle I've seen it in my own life, and it sure is hell beyond school, because I didn't struggle in school, because I didn't give a shit. I didn't care. I, I got A's in the stuff I was interested in, and I got C's in the stuff that I really didn't care about, but I knew I had to finish so I could get out of the hellhole that I was in. And I was good enough, and I didn't give a damn. Some people care more, and they try harder, and they have to... and it, My struggle was more a personal struggle with family life but it's what lit a fire under my ass to really do something in the world. And we've removed every struggle a person could have. And it, it, it yes, it does go to things like participation trophies. And you might think well, like participation trophies and riddle and don't go in the same bucket. They absolutely do. We don't want our children to have to struggle. We don't want them to feel bad. We don't want them to get a D. You know, maybe your kid needs a D. Because maybe that says, like I really suck at this, or I could do better at this, or I don't want to do better at this. Or, well, What do you want to do? Don't blame our children because our system is wrong. Our system of education is a failure. And when we medicate children to force them through it, what we're saying is, well, it's okay that it's a failure. We're making our children fit in a failed system. And even with that, I'm going to say this again. We're at a point now... Where I believe it's something like 15 to 20% of male children are put on methamphetamines to get them through school. And we have to. We have to. Bullshit! And the reason we know it's bullshit is because we are still using the same educational paradigm we use since about 1900, really since 1850s. But around 1900, 1910, with John Dewey really formalized it, and somehow kids got through that shit, from, let's say, 1910 all the way up to about 1990 without dope. So if all those kids could do it, don't tell me our kids today can't. Our teachers can't because they don't want to because it's hard and it's difficult. And now I have this button I can push and make Johnny sit down and look straight. And this is the result. A grown man that says, hey, I can do amazing things and I can't do them on this stuff. And then we justify it and we want to make ourselves feel okay about it because we have to. There's no other way. Well, maybe in some instances there's not another way. Maybe there's not another option. But don't you think we should explore every option before we decide it's okay to put... A schedule tool narcotic in our child just because he doesn't sit down without squirming and put his head in the right direction for eight hours to listen to a large proportion of which is bullshit he will never use or in her life ever again. I'm just saying. And it's amazing that when the teacher actually teaches, a lot of these so called ADD kids actually learn because they're engaging, they're entertaining and they're actually able to convey something of value. The problem is the system and the way we teach. It is not the child. It is not normal, and it never has been normal for a person to sit in a desk for eight hours a day. Those who rebel against it are simply more human than the rest of us. They've been less domesticated. Fixing that with a drug is not necessarily in their best interest. Let's take another one.
0: Hey, Jack, Jason from PA here, $2 wager for you. I think term limits are totally possible. And the way they're possible is we do the same thing we do that you mentioned with uh, Social Security, the guns. Hey, keep your machine guns. You have machine guns, you get to keep them. You just can't buy any ones that are manufactured after today. Same thing. Hey, if you're already in Congress, if you're already a representative or a senator, term limits don't apply to you. But any newly elected person will be under term limits. Hey, look, we're Congress people. We pass term limit laws. Of course, they don't affect them. But, hey, we're going to be old. A lot of them are already going to retire in another 10 years. They just want an extra term or two. Let's see if that happens. So I got a $2 wager for you.
1: Well, that's what we need, um, in the world today, creative thinking. And I'll give you that, Jason. It is creative. And it, it is possible that, you know, you have people like Mitch McConnell, who as soon as Donald Trump says, I'm going to propose an amendment. And by the way, this can't be a law. This has to be a constitutional amendment. You cannot have one group of legislatures temporarily put a limit on other government uh, the people that's going to replace them in the future without a constitutional amendment. doesn't work in our society. It has to be an amendment to the Constitution, which is difficult. Now, the grandfathering might be a way to get them to go along with it. There is another way, and it would be an Article Five Convention of the States. And um, I've, I've always been concerned about having a constitutional convention because, well, You can get other things done that are, instead of restrictions on government, are restrictions on people. uh, Instead of the people, instead of the government, which is the exact opposite of what we need right now. We need to limit the ability of the federal government to interfere in our lives. When I think about it more, though, it takes two thirds of the states to ratify an amendment, right? And you're like, so, well, they'll go after the Second Amendment. Well, you're not going to get two thirds of the states to ratify repealing the Second Amendment. It just isn't going to happen. But as I've learned more about Article 5, um, what I realize is that when an Article 5 Convention of the States is proposed and then signed off of on the states, it is not an open contract. It is a closed contract. And the current effort right now to get an Article 5 Convention of the States for the purpose of proposing and ratifying uh, constitutional amendments is very specific and whatever it's called for, those are the only things you can discuss. So you could call one to discuss some things that would be concerning, but that's not the effort being made right now. The, the current effort is for three things. There's three items on the agenda, and only those items would be open and available in this convention. One is term limits. okay. The other is a balanced budget amendment. And the third is pretty broad but it's also completely safe limiting the power of the federal government. So if this convention of the states is indeed convened, only things that fit in that umbrella can even be proposed, which makes sense for a variety of reasons. One, the the fear that all of us have that well they'll they'll pass amendments that actually, you know, bring back prohibition or some stupid shit like that, right? Um where under that broad third plank one could propose an amendment that the federal government no longer has the power to regulate cannabis. That would fit. okay? Making cannabis illegal would not fit. Because that doesn't limit the power of the federal government. Removing the federal government's ability to police cannabis would actually empower states to regulate it however they chose. So a state that says, hell no, we won't grow like Oklahoma, right? would be able to say it's completely illegal in Oklahoma, and here's our state laws against it. And other states might say, well, we're going to legalize it, with no longer fearing the federal government's interference. I'm kind of okay with that, however that works out, because it's better than what we have now. And there's, there's two ways in Article Five that amendments can be proposed and then uh, passed. And I think I said two-thirds. It's actually three-fourths of the state. So you have to have 75% vote. But one starts in Congress, okay? So Congress has to propose the amendment. They have to vote on it, and then it has to be ratified um, by the states. The other way, and this is something our founders were smart about that kept power in the hands of the states, is the states can call this convention of the states, The states can propose it. It can then be sent to the states for ratification by three-fourths of the state. And even if Congress is opposed to it, even if the Senate and the House say, no, oh no, 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 they don't get to do anything. They get it rammed up their ass. So we can amend the Constitution without the House and the Senate. So term limits on Congress ain't going to come from Congress. And it has to be an amendment to the Constitution. It has to be ratified by three-fourths of the states. But a convention of the states can be convened to circumvent the congressional, national, federal, congressional role. Now, the thing is, would three-quarters of the states sign off on something like federal term limits? They might. Because it doesn't affect them. It doesn't affect them at all. They get to send a new ass-clown to take that seat whenever they want. Right? So, like, you just, the incumbent goes away. And I I think that the number of people are kicking around is like something like three terms in the House, which is six years, or four four terms in the House, which would be eight eight years, and two terms in the Senate, which would be 12, which I almost think is too long, but, you know, it's just, that's how it works out. Otherwise, you're going to do one term in the Senate. Um, But that would be a hell of a lot better than what we have. We have people that have been in, in the Senate for 30 years. And and they just amass too much power. I'd almost like to see, like, three terms in the House, one in the Senate. right? But this all can be fettered out and debtored out and then voted on. The other thing, though, is, like, a balanced budget amendment. I, I think you'll have a hard time getting three-quarters of the states because a lot of the states are getting a lot of money from the federal government that ain't balanced budget money. So that might be harder. But other ways you would limit the power of the federal government, for instance... A state that absolutely does not want cannabis in their state may still sign on to a law removing the authority of the federal government to regulate it. Because they they, they don't want to have it eventually... Imagine that the federal government turns around and legalizes it. So anything that actually limits the federal government's power is something actually quite appealing to a state. Rather, whether that state is a red state or a blue state doesn't really matter. So there's some potential there. We'll see how it works out. I don't have a lot of faith in it happening. But it would be a way to do it. Now, getting it done in Congress with grandfathering. So Congress initiates the process, gets it through Congress, and sends it to the states for ratification. With grandfathering, it it definitely has some appeal. Because, yeah, I can be Mitch McConnell and say, well, we got term limits in just like everybody wanted. Doesn't affect me, but we got it done. But right? um, Because they don't lose anything. And and for some that that have a long career ahead, they actually might see this as advantageous. Let's say somebody that's maybe in their second term in the House, but is in a very gerrymandered district, is going to constantly win re-election. If they were a dog, they would win win re-election, would see it as a power stroke because They're going to be able to come back over and over and over, and any oppositional young blood, so to speak, will peter out in six years. So maybe. I don't know. Good thinking, Jason. And that's what we need more creative thinking. Let's take another one.
3: Hey, Jack. Sean from uh, Ontario, Canada.
0: Regarding the t spaz link for Amazon purchases to support the show, uh, does it doesn't work the same way. I can't recall. I've been doing some purchases off Amazon and uh, feel guilty for not uh, choosing the link. But uh, just give me some details on that, and I'd be happy to uh, go through that link and support you. Thanks a lot.
2: Take care.
1: Okay, so the, the way the Amazon Affiliate Program works where you shop through our affiliate link is you just go – to tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. There's a link there that says, click here to shop any and all items on Amazon. You click that link, you go to Amazon, you add items to your cart, you check out, and ta-da, it's done. You're, on the device you're using, you're cookied for 24 hours. So if you put it in your cart, you don't check out, and you come back two days later and check out, we don't get credit for it. Right. I don't want your life to be complicated trying to make sure we get credit. If you just generally do your shopping through T-SPAS, that's, that's, that's good enough. But, you know, I've had people email me, I'm, I'm about to buy $10,000 worth of stuff and I want to make sure you get, cause I'm buying it for the company. I want to make sure you get credit for it. Well, please. Thank you. You know, um, so if you're using the app on like your, your Android or your iPhone, as far as I know, as long as you use the browser, Go to T-Spas, click the link, and then it opens the app. It works just fine. If you put items in your cart like for the future, then go to T-Spas and check out. I do not believe that works because I've had a couple of people that did that, told me what they bought, and I can't see who bought what. I can't see you, but I can see your items and it was some pretty unique stuff and it didn't show up that way. So, if you if you really want to make sure we get credit, and again, I'm Guys, I just appreciate the support, right? So I don't want to make your life complicated again, but if you have a bunch of stuff in your cart and you wanted to make sure we got credit for it and you hadn't gone through, it would be best to delete them from your cart, go through t and add them back. Right? I mean, that's... So that's kind of the rules as I understand them, that you have to go through the link before adding items to your cart, but as long as you go through the link, it doesn't matter how. And if you went through the link on your work computer put the items in your cart, and then went back at home on a different computer, we probably wouldn't get credit because the cookie's not there. So it's a cookie in your browser that determines this. Okay, so that's how it works. Anyway, let's take another one.
0: Hi, good morning, Jack. Uh, I just wanted to uh, check in on something that you were talking about a while ago. This could be as Jack was right. Um, I remember a little while ago you were talking about the strongman Republican that was next in line that, And you did a whole episode on that. If you could, could you please cite what episode that was? And now, do you think that Donald Trump fits uh, your theory on that? Thank you very much. Have a great day.
1: Um, It's almost scary to me to look back to 2009, right? Because we're going back a little over seven years. And to think of the fact that I said exactly those words, that you got to ask Clinton Obama for two terms, he's going to make people crave authority, and then you'll get this Republican strongman in that will be able to do things that no Democrat would ever be able to get done, including things like expanding Obamacare under the auspices of repealing Obamacare. Is Trump that strongman? Okay. There's two ways that I would answer that question. The first is, as a profile, does he fit the mold? And the answer is 100%. If, if you think about the way Trump campaigned, completely an authoritarian candidate. Now, a lot of things that were shoved at of misogynist, uh, you know, sexist, uh, every is they could are, are, are way over the top and bullshit. But authoritarian is damn solid. When you start talking about shutting down the Internet right? I mean, that's authoritarian. When you start talking about bombing the hell out of them, that's authoritarian. So I I do think that Trump is nowhere near as hawkish as the liberal media would want you to believe as far as war. I think he wants to knock the hell out of ISIS and get the hell out of the Middle East as much as possible. And I'm all for that. Whether or not he can do it, I don't know. When it comes to things like you know, introducing a public option, which will be the poison pill that will eventually get a complete government uh, takeover of healthcare. Can he get those things done? I don't know, but I think he's going to try. Just a whole show on the way I think the the, the Trump presidency is going to go. So I don't want to rehash it all here, but I, I, I want you to kind of think like so that would be one of like the like how the hell what kind of Harry Houdini bullshit do you have to pull to to go say I'm going to repeal and replace Obamacare and then repeal parts of it, leave other parts of it in place, make it better, and yet expand it at the same time. Well, then you have to do what I said the other day, the grand bargain. You have to say to your people, listen, listen, its I can't get it through Congress. I can't get it done without making some concessions. But in return for allowing a public option, for instance, which is where this 22 million people that didn't have credit coverage will go, and that will keep their cost down without burdening you, right? Because they're not, it's going to be revenue neutral. That's the, the word they'll use. That They're going to pay for it. They're just going to pay basically the, the public option will be a nonprofit insurance provider. But in return, we're going to open up competition across state lines, we're going to give you all of these tax credits and, and deductions. So if you're paying for any poor – what they'll say is if you're paying – this is how they'll sell it. If you're paying for anything for your health insurance, it's deductible. And they may not get 100% of that, but that's what they'll go for. That will be part of the negotiating strategy. So if your employer's providing health insurance, but you're spending $2,000 a year, you get a tax deduction for that. Right? That's the and, – and, and if – I want you to think about this right now. If you're self-employed and you're spending for you and your spouse $12,000 a year on health insurance that sucks, that you never actually end up really using, it's really only for catastrophic and so you don't have to pay a penalty, and you're presented with an option that says, and you believe it, that's that's key, that you believe it, your insurance will get cut in half under this option and it'll be better. But some people will be able to buy insurance from the government. And what they'll say is, but we already do that. It's called Medicaid. It's called Medicare. We already have public options for health insurance. We're just making it available to anybody that wants it, but the government is going to have to compete with private industry. I think he can sell that. And I think even though the talking heads will point out at first, it's a death nail. Cause that's what they say. Oh my God. It's a, it's going to kill competition because the government doesn't have to make a profit. But the, but, but, they're the same people that constantly tell you how bad government is and how incompetent it is. So that people, so the more competition you drive in the private sector, the private sector will be able to do a better job than government. That's a very compelling case. And what the hell else do you want us to do? They screwed it up. We're entrenched in this thing now. This is the only way to unwind out of it. This is the only way I can get enough buy-in from the I'm telling you. Uh, I think on surveillance of the American people, Obama's set so much precedent for that. Trump loves the idea of digging into everybody's shit because he really thinks it's going to make America safe again. See, I, I don't think you have to necessarily have bad intentions to do bad things as a president or as any politician with power. You can believe in what you're doing in some ways that's scarier than someone that's just a dirtbag. I think Trump has some things about him that are very off as a person. The way he speaks about women and some of the things that at least he's allegedly done with women seems wrong to me. And he occasionally says shit that like, you know, that's not what he really meant. But why the hell did you say it that way? Right, I mean, he's, he's got some off-putting characteristics. But I don't think he's inherently a bad human being. I don't think he's like, ooh, I can't wait to control all of this and squash all these little... I don't think he's that guy at all. I think he really believes in what he's doing. And if that's channeled right, it can make things better. And if ch- that's channeled wrong, it's dangerous. I'll, uh, here's an analogy. You are a police negotiator. You negotiate for hostages. And here's your two scenarios. One, there's a guy in a bank. He's a robber. He wants money and he wants to try to get out of it. He has 15 people held hostage. He has no ideology whatsoever except I'm caught now and I want to get out of this as best I can. You can negotiate with him. Your other scenario is... You have a religious extremist that believes he's doing God's work. Notice I didn't say Muslim. I don't care what religion. And he believes his job is to hold those 15 people because God told him to do it. And crazy or not, he really believes it. Who is easier to negotiate with? You tell me. Man, I'm taking the criminal in that one. I'm taking the criminal that knows he's a criminal. Because I know his survival instinct... His, his desire for his own safety supersedes any conviction he has to kill those people. Now, he could go haywire at the end and realize he's going down and decide he wants to die and I'm going to take people with me. But the person with the religious conviction that believes God told him to do it, right? I, it's a hypothetical, completely. Don't be upset if you're religious. I'm not saying that all religious, I'm not saying any religious person is going to do this. I'm just saying you, you tell me. The person that believes in what they're doing is more likely to go at it 100% than a person who's just doing it for personal gain, nefariously. And I I think Trump's the guy that believes in what he's doing. And we can only hope that the best of it is what's successful. But I think on healthcare, I think I've just given you the blueprint. Let's take another
3: one. Hi, Jack. This is Doug from Virginia's northern Shenandoah Valley. I was hoping to get an act after-action report on your experience raising turkeys this summer.
2: Appreciate all you do. Bye.
1: Well, there, there actually couldn't have been a better day, really, for this question to have come, uh, because yesterday I loaded up four turkeys and I took them to the processor. And this morning I'm a little late because I loaded up, I got loaded up in the truck and went and picked them up from the processor. Uh, the weight breakdown was like this: I took a hen and three gobblers for, for myself. And the hen, the hen had a dressed weight of 36 pounds. These are broad breasted bronze. The gobblers weighed 34, 36, and the largest gobbler weighed 40 pounds. These are dressed weights. These are not live weights. They are not, you know, this is carcass weight. A 40 pound bird. Um, when you get to a carcass on a turkey, it's, it's pretty heavy to the, you know, meat side. It's probably about a 70% meat yield off a of carcass. So that's a lot of meat. Um, all the other ones are sold. The way I did the, the deal with selling them is that people will come here. I just had somebody come pick their bird up just a little bit ago. Came here, picked up their bird. And uh, you take it to your processor. You self-process whatever you do. After you're done processing, you weigh the bird. And then it's $3 a pound. Okay, so that's... that. Worked out really good too. The missteps in all of this. The missteps. So, these birds couldn't fly over a matchstick at this point in their lives. When they're about eight weeks till about two months of age, they're much more able to fly than you would think and they like perching on things. I lost three. And consider at $3 a pound, average weight 30 pounds, each one of those birds is $90. And one day, because they hopped up on my newly constructed bee, the beehive stand, went over the fence and went off the parts unknown and disappeared. We lost one on the brooder that I think just guy just needed to die. I just think his he got a death wish. Um, he continuously is a little poult shoved himself underneath the 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 drain system I have for the water dish. I mean, like, crammed himself up under there. I saved him three times, and the fourth time he managed to kill himself, so that's that. We had one that died for no apparent reason. It was pretty hot that day, but, like, we, we left. Everybody was fine. We came back. It was laying there dead. We have one that I think the other ones beat it to death. We we're standing right outside. Everybody's fine. Everybody's happy. Two minutes later, there's this turkey bleeding from the nose up against the wall. So I don't know that. And, uh, so we, we lost some birds and that made the profit a lot less, um, in the end. But yet we still more, you know, we still got paid to put meat in our freezer and that's, that's a win. They were very little work. Once they were out of the brooder, we pretty much let them run around on the ground and we gave them a place to perch at night. And when they got big enough, they stopped perching. And, uh, they were very little work. We have the kiddie pools for the ducks. When the ducks are in the same place with them, they use those kiddie pools for their water. When the ducks went to a different paddock, we just kept a pool full of water for them. And uh, the big thing we learned, again, is making sure that they don't go to places where it's easy for them to get over a fence. If I had to do it again, once they feathered out, I would clip their wings. I don't like doing it to them because I like giving them a place to perch, but I would just give them a place to And what we did, we put them in the chicken tractor until they were big enough to be left out at night. So every night we would feed them, and they got trained. And they're not like chickens. They don't run from you. They're pretty easy to just pick up and throw in the chicken tractor. So we put them in there until they got to be too big. And then they were roosting on top of the chicken tractor. So we just moved it every day. And when they couldn't fly up on there anymore, they just they just laid down on the ground right next to the duck cage. We did not put them with the ducks because we learned from a prior experience there's they get bigger and aggressive, they can kill ducks. We had one duck had its back broken and had to be put down, and we're pretty sure the turkeys did it. So we kept them outside. That was it. We fed them in the morning and the evening, and they foraged all day. They gorged on grasshoppers. And while we haven't eaten any of it yet, we will be eating you know, pastured turkey for Thanksgiving here. Um, they were fantastic last year. My wife, who's not real big still on eating meat that we raised, said, best turkey she's ever eaten in her life. So I think they're the easiest meat. The downside is if you're not doing them in tractors or, you know, like we can't do step-in electro net here because of the rock and all, they they will tend to like sit on your porch and, and they, God, the shit is huge. I mean, one, it's not like a chicken, you know. The ducks get up there and they poop and, you know, you, you just let it dry and it just flakes away in the wind. It's just no big deal. This is nasty. So that was the one big problem. I will not miss them now that they're going to be gone. So if you have a way you can keep them off of that, or you can use like paddock shift, electro net, whatever, you'd, you'd be better off. We just free ranged them. We just free ranged them. They caused no real problems. They did scratch up a few places here and there on occasion, but they never did anything like a chicken did. And God, they're just big birds. And again, they're not afraid. So the guy that came to pick it up today is like, I'm like, which one do you want? He said, whatever one you can catch. I said, pick one. They're not going anywhere. You just walk up, grab it, and throw it in the box. I mean, that's, they have no fear of human beings. They might move away a little bit, but in the end, you can just grab them whenever you want to. So I'm, I'm pro turkey, man. Um, now my long-term plan was, since this is such a great meat source, get some royal palms, which is an heirloom bird and keep a trio and let them raise their own poult every year so I don't have a poult expense. Not going to happen. The other thing that I'm probably not going to do again is I'm probably not going to sell birds again. Um, I'll probably get like six poults, seven poults to account for some losses. And if I have one or two, I'll sell them to people that I know personally, like, hey, do you want a turkey this year? And I won't even worry about it until they're close to graduation date. I think that you'd need better infrastructure and to do more of them to make it worth it. Um, it just put some money in my pocket, but um, just – Doing less in the beginning probably would have been better, especially considering losses. Now, let's say, say I hadn't lost those three that went over the fence, and actually it was four that went over the fence three in one day and one another day, and I would prevent that from happening. That's four more birds. They had eaten a lot of feed by then, too. They were pretty well grown. Uh, not as big as they ended up, but, you know, so they had, I had money in them. Uh, but let's say that was 30 pounds average, right? Um, that was $360 that went over the fence. And that's be selling them cheap. I know I could charge four bucks and still sell them. Uh, I could charge five and still sell them probably. But I just wanted it to be easy, and I didn't want to do any any real work. So I, I enjoyed it. I think I'll do it all the time. I think another thing that I'll do differently next year is I kind of sat on my heels, do I want to do this again or not? And I didn't get my birds till May. I think I'll get my birds in March, which is about as early as you can get pults, and that means they'll be done by like the end of August. I can have them processed and be done with it for the year instead of having to deal with them this late in the year. All right, I hope you enjoyed it. Let's take one more, and we will wrap up for the day.
2: Hey, Jack, it's Austin. Leo here from Central Texas um, calling in a question about law enforcement. So I've been in law enforcement for the last three I'm 26 years old, uh, and there's some things that I absolutely hate about what I do, uh, what I hate about law enforcement. However, just recently I've been having instances where I won't get into too many details, but I've put child rapists behind bars. I've put people who beat their wives behind bars. And I've had times where I remember why I originally got into this. Um, it's just one of those things that I have a hard time wrapping my head around. It's a stressful job uh, in the first place. And, you know, I've got a lot of. Uh, a lot of things that I disagree with about what we do, but at the same time, it, it provides an opportunity to do some things that you don't get anywhere else to do. Just wondering what you think and how, if uh, if I choose to stay in law enforcement, because that's kind of the decision I'm at, is getting out of law enforcement and moving towards other options uh, and creating my own uh, business and moving forward with that. Or, if I choose to stay in law enforcement, how do you see a way to operate within the law enforcement community uh, as a beneficial way to the community and as an anarchist. Uh, I know it's weird uh, being an anarchist police officer. Sometimes I don't even understand that and I have a hard time explaining it to people. But um, I'm just curious about your thoughts. Uh, Respect what you say, respect what you do, uh, and thank you for everything that you do. Uh, Continue to do good work and keep on trucking.
1: Well, first, thank you for the kind words. And secondly, let me say I respect what you do and what you say as well, because you've called in more than once. So when people say there's no good cops, I would point to you as an example of why they're full of shit. Just going to say that. The next thing is people will say, you know, being an anarchist and a police officer at the same time is not possible. Yes, it is because anarchism is a philosophy it, of the way things should be. And there's the way things should be. And from a pragmatic approach, there's the way things are. And I'm fine with sending certain people to jail or prison. Even though I don't think the state should be doing that, I still think there should be a place like that for certain people. There's just a whole lot of people there I don't think should be there. So let me kind of explain it from from my view philosophically, and then we'll get into, like, how do you make this decision a little bit. Let's say that I catch a a son-of-a-bitch Raping a child. I catch him in the act. Raping a child. I don't care if the child's male or female. Somebody's raping a child. If I have a 45 on me. I'm gonna pull it out and put a hole in their head. Cause that's what I have. If I don't have a 45. I might grab him by the neck and choke him out. If there's a cliff, I might throw him off it. Or for some reason I'm having flashbacks to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, not the Melting Faces or whatever, though that would be a fitting punishment for a child rapist. But remember the big guy who's fighting and the plane turns around and he hits the propellers and he gets chopped up by the plane propellers and, like, Indy closes his eyes and his and just, like, blood spurts everywhere. See, if the, if the propeller of the plane is what's available for the scumbag, then I'm fine with that being how they meet their end. So, if I have somebody who's... Abducting children, raping children, doing human trafficking, uh, beating uh, weaker people or something. And and what happens to be available to make them stop is the state's system, then that's what's available. I, again, I wish there were better options in many instances, but that's what's available. So I think philosophically that can work. I mean, think of it like serving on a jury. Uh, I remember a big debate on Facebook one time in an anarchist group that you can't be on a jury and be an anarchist. Or you can, but you have to vote not guilty no matter what. And they were all getting on this one guy because he said, you know, if, and it, was, it was child molestation. He says, if I was on a jury and there was a person that was accused of child molestation, and I believe they actually did it, I'd vote guilty. Oh, you're not a real anarchist. You're fake, whatever. It's, it's just stupid because that's what's available. Hey, Jack, what do you think should happen to a child molester? Oh, I think they should be buried in a hole. Oh, you think they should be executed? Well, yeah, by being buried in a hole. Well, how's that work? You dig a really deep hole, you throw them in it, and you bury them. Eventually, you know, the system will work. It'll take care of itself. You don't have to shoot them or anything. You start pushing dirt in the hole. It'll, You're going to bury them anyway. That's expediency. It's function stacking. You know, that's what I think should happen. But that's what's not going to happen. But they can go spend, you know, 10, 20 years in prison uh, being the product of abuse or living in isolation because they're in ad seg because so that's fitting for that person or if i'm sitting on a jury and uh the 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 accused is uh is charged with growing marijuana plants in his house with the intent to distribute great i'll sit there with a straight face listen to the whole thing and i get to the end not guilty but the state has met its burden not guilty don't tell me how to do my job as a juror right a cop doesn't have that there's times when a cop can't take that out they they have to do something and that's where it gets difficult for cops. So let's start out with the first thing. There's things you like about your job, job and things you don't like about your job. You're going to have to ask yourself at some point, is this is this is this bad for me? Is this toxic in my life? Is this making me miserable? Is it preventing me from being the father, the husband, etc. that I want to be? Are there things that I want to do more? And in that case, it doesn't matter that it's law enforcement. I think if you feel like that about any profession, then you need to find your way out of it. And the longer you stay in a profession, especially when it's a state-based profession, the more difficult that is. But that doesn't necessarily sound like it's where you are. But if it is, you need to go. And there are people that would say, no, don't leave. We need people like you. I agree with the principle, but not the point of that. When I hear somebody say, "Well, I want to leave being a soldier because I'm disabled, we need you." You know, and so people that aren't doing the work want you to stay there and do it. I think it's incredibly selfish. I want you to be miserable so I feel better. And I would never ask that of anybody. I would never ask another man to live for me. I think it's one of the few quotes I actually know from Ayn Rand, right? It's something like, "I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of another man." nor ask another man to live for me. Something like that, right? And, and, and that's what you're doing. When you say, well, you need to stay in this line of work because you're one of the good ones, you're asking someone else to do what you want, and I would never do that. So you have to decide if this is toxic in your life and if you don't want to do it, and is there something you want to do more. And then that's pursuing your dreams, and you always should, if you can, find a dream worthy of pursuit, pursue it to its fullest. I believe that's how we evolve and become the best human we can be, but I will agree with the sentiment. You're a damn good cop, and I like having people like you doing the job. So now let's kind of talk about how you might be able to continue to do the job and feel good about it. Like, you already know there's certain things that, like, if i got to do somebody up for this, I'm okay with it. Well, you know, police departments tend to get cut up into divisions, like I I have two people I'm pretty close to that are law enforcement officers, both family members. So one of them is my brother-in-law, and for a while he worked property crimes, and that's all he worked. He didn't really enjoy it, but I think he felt pretty good about it when he made a bust because if you're arresting somebody and and you're, you're investigating property crimes, you're investigating and you're apprehending people who have stolen other people's property. And I think that all of us, libertarian, anarchists, minarchists, would agree that's not okay. So when someone comes in and fills out a report that, um, you know, here's a a case in point where construction sites are having stuff stolen from them, and you're not just stealing from the company building the houses at that point. That's affecting what the houses are going to be sold. You're you're slowing down the timeline, so you're stealing from the people that are eventually going to buy those houses. Um, You're a bad guy. So when they took that guy down, there's there's no – in that situation, you're not prosecuting a victimless crime. So that would be one way. At this point, that same individual is basically over very large events as a lieutenant. So this would be things like when, you know, the Dallas Cowboys games and stuff like that. So not just in his city but throughout the Metroplex coordinating multiple departments when they're too big. And, I mean – i'm sure some people get popped for some minor offenses and stuff like that during this but really what you're doing then is you're ensuring the the the, the flow of, of public and public safety right you're you're not really harassing people doing that job so that that took a long time and that's kind of like probably he'll retire in that position so that it's not something you just do tomorrow but you know property crimes and what have you if you can get into a division or a, a specific area where Everybody you're going after is someone that either hurt somebody or stole from somebody. Everybody you're going after does have a victim. That's a lot easier to live with yourself with than, than you know, sitting at a checkpoint and nailing a guy for being .08 alcohol level when he was two blocks from his house and was never going to cause a problem. That's, you know, or, you know, busting somebody for growing pot in their basement or something. I, I just, things like that, you know. I, I wouldn't want to be the guy doing it. Anything I would say not guilty for on a jury, even if they did it, I wouldn't want to be the guy arresting them. And you can only look the other way so often. So I understand where you're coming from. My other person, I guess you call him my nephew-in-law. I don't really know what your niece's husband is, but he's my nephew-in-law. He is currently detached with the United States Marshals as part of a task force and they're working human trafficking. He has no, absolutely no remorse. Whenever they nail somebody. When you have somebody snatching 14-year-old girls off the street and selling them into sex slavery and you take that person down, I don't care that they're being thrown into the teeth of the state instead of the teeth of a bear. It doesn't matter to me. They're scum. And that's the apparatus available to put them into. So if you can find your way into something like that, where what you're focused on is always victim-based crimes... Then I think you'll have an easier time sleeping at night. But in the end, it doesn't even come down to that moral conflict alone. It comes down to, is this what you want to spend your life doing? Because three years, three and a half years in, it's actually pretty easy to go do something else. When you're 15 years in, you know you're halfway to a pension. You've got, you know, kids that are already getting high school and getting ready to go to college. You're 20 years in. I mean, it gets harder and harder and harder. So if there is a time, the time is soon. But don't do it just because there's certain things you don't like about your job. Because you know the old saying, out of the frying pan into the fryer. Right? So you got to know, whenever you're creating an exodus from any profession, where is the promised land? How long is the journey and will you live long enough to get there? And if the answer is I don't know, understand the always the answer always can be it's there. Here's my path, and yes, I'll live long enough to get there. I won't be Moses standing on the hill, being told I can look at it, but I'll never set foot in it. I, I that's not me. But you got to have the plan. You got to have the plan. You got to think of it this way. Every day on this planet, hundreds of thousands of ships leave ports. And they travel thousands of nautical miles across oceans. And they deal with piracy. They deal with weather events. They deal with all kinds of things. And 99.9% of them arrive at their intended destination on time. Why? Because the captain has a plan, and he has contingency plans. If we ran our lives that way, we'd have a much higher success rate. So if you do decide to step out... Step out with a not, you know, a a navigation plan. Know why you're doing it, what you're doing and and where you're going. And I don't care if it's cop. I don't care if it's teacher. I don't care if it's mechanic. If something's destroying your soul, life's too short. The dash in between your, your birth date and your death date are all you have. Spend your dash a different way. With that, I hope you've enjoyed today's show. If you did like it and you want to help support us, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. If you do that, you'll be able to sign up. You can sign up online with uh, PayPal. You can also click the link to use uh, the form to mail in. Send it by snail mail and pay with uh, cash, check, money order. If you want to barter something, I'm always open to the possibility of barter. Just uh, email me and tell me what you have in mind and we'll see if we can work something out. And I love Bitcoin. I love, 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 love Bitcoin. So I also take Bitcoin. There's a link to do that online. You can sign up there uh, to, to do it by Bitcoin. Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, and all first responders, active duty and prior service, like EMTs and firefighters, et cetera, if qualify for a discount, email me before not after you join. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I'll send you an email back telling you what the discount code is to save you money on an already greatly priced product. Uh, and next up today, we talked about TSPAS, so I won't reiterate what TSPAS is. I think most of the listeners know by now. It's how you can support us by shopping on Amazon. But I also review an item every day for, uh, for t spats for an Amazon item that I actually use. And as I've said before, these are items I actually use. Today is a German-style fermentation crock. comes in four sizes, 5-liter, 10-liter, 15-liter, and 20-liter. That would be 1.3, 2.6, 3.9, or 5.2 gallons. And it's a, a great fermentation crock. This is where you make lacto-fermented things like lacto-fermented vegetables or sauerkraut in. It's ceramic, and it has two round ceramic stones, two half-round ceramic stones that sit on top of everything, keep it from floating to the top, and keep it under the salt brine where it belongs to do its fermenting. The lid sits on it, and there's a little rim, and you fill that rim with water, so the CO2, it, it, vapors can get out, but oxygen can't get in. So you end up with a true temperature-controlled, light-free uh, fermentation environment. And you can make sauerkraut so easy in these things. You can basically shred cabbage up and add salt to it and pack it in there. And then it sweats out and it makes its own brine and all. But if you're doing a lot of vegetables, sometimes you make a salt brine up. And there's a bunch of different things that I like to ferment. I love lacto-fermented foods. It's got an incredible health benefit uh, to it. And it, it, it really has a great flavor if you do it right. And uh, one of my favorite things to make is called escabeche. Now, escabeche is, you know, there's there's Spanish, there's Mexican, there's Italian, there's a bunch of, there's some of the seafood flair and whatever. But plain old escabeche, especially coming from, like, the Mexican standpoint, is jalapenos, uh, onions, and carrots. And if you go to any good hole-in-the-wall Mexican place down here, you know, a place where you can get a margarita that comes in a small glass that's made with lime juice, tequila, and some sort of orange liquor, like, they say, Contro or Grand Marnier, and, and not Kool-Aid. Right, it's not a fish bowl. A place like that, there'll always be a little bowl of escabeche on the on the table when you sit down, and it's considered kind of a digestive aid because it's lacto fermented. A lot of times now they're making it with vinegar, but the real stuff is lacto fermented, and it's it's tradition in almost every every diet from across the world. There's some lacto fermented food, Germany sauerkraut. You know, Spain and, 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 and Latin America, escabeche, right? And there's just yogurt in, in, in many dairy-based places, right? So I wanted to make something that was a little less hot, a little bit more creative, but basically the same type of thing. So I came up with my version of escabeche, And instead of making slices, I make long, thin strips because it looks cool. And this is what I put in mine: Equal amounts of the following. Sweet peppers, carrots, jalapenos, and white onions. And then I also use garlic, which I'll talk about in a second. You cut them up, you stick them in your crock, you mix up salt water. I use two tablespoons to a quart. The the kind of the, the, the standard is one to three per quart. I settled on the middle two, it works well, so I keep doing it. Use sea salt, kosher salt, or pickling salt, and I use a handful of black peppercorns. You put them all in there, you put uh now what I do, I go out to my grapevines and I get some grape leaves off them. I put that on the top before I put my stones to hold it under the brine. The tannin in the in the uh, the, uh, the grape leaves, actually, you get a much more crisp product in your ferment. Some people use oak leaves. I've never tried that, but I don't see why it would not work. If you're going to do that, you don't want to use brown ones. You want to use, like, when they're green, like your big oak leaves, and just kind of a little, little layer, and then put your stones on, and you let it sit for about 7 to 10 days. You taste it when you're wondering if it's tanged up enough for it. When it's done, you put it in jars. You put it in the refrigerator. It will store for quite a while, but I don't think ferments store really great for like six months or anything. So I'm not big on the whole like five-gallon fermenter. Uh, The five to ten liter is is a great size. I make like three quarts at a time, put it in the refrigerator. It's good for about 60 days. Now what I've done, though, I, I found at places like Albertson Supermarket. I'm sure other supermarkets that you guys might shop would have this. In the produce section, sometimes you'll see like where they already have... Cut up vegetables in a clamshell case, a little plastic clamshell case, and they might have peppers or tomatoes or whatever, broccoli for frying or what have you. Usually those places will have one of those clamshells, and it'll be about three bucks, it'll be full of garlic cloves. Whole garlic cloves peeled. Right? So you, that's great, that's a lot of work to peel that much garlic. And they're like three or four bucks. One of those to this recipe, you know, if you're making about three quarts is, is great. I usually buy two or three. And I just dump those in when I do the vegetables. And when I bottle up or jar up the the ferment, I jar up a couple jars of just garlic. And I use it in salads. I use it for cooking. I use it for snacking. You've basically got a jalapeno-infused garlic. Right? This lacto-fermented. And that stuff lasts like four or five months. It it keeps a lot better than the peppers do and things like that. I added the sweet peppers for some sweet character and to lighten up the heat a little bit. Um, Now... On the jalapenos, let's say you don't like spicy at all. Seed them, there's almost no heat. Seed half of them, you got half heat. Another way to do it, seed all your jalapenos. Maybe to a batch this size, you get three jalapenos, cut them in half seeds and all, and put those in there. Then when you take them out, remove those and jar everything up without the seeds. Or if you want more heat, put one half per jar in your long-term storage. Good stuff. I'm also going to do lacto fermented Jerusalem artichokes this year. I've heard that takes away the fartichoke thing because they tend to make you gassy. We'll see how that works out, but I haven't tried it yet, so I can't tell you whether I'm going to like it or not yet. But I've I've not made many things that I don't like lacto fermented. I've not tried. Many. Another thing you can do is you just do fermented fermented hot peppers. And then you blend them up and squeeze out, and you got hot sauce. Lacto-fermented hot sauce. Good stuff. A little garlic always goes with that. Anyway, tspaz.com, you know how that helps support the show. The fermentation crock, right now they've got a, a great deal on the 5 liter for 57 bucks. Yes, you can do this in jars. Everything you said, you can do it in a mason jar with an airlock attached, like for fermenting beer. But it just seems to work better in these crocks. And if Christmas is coming, guys. If you know someone that likes this kind of stuff, I don't know anybody that likes lactoferment that wouldn't be head over heels with it as a gift. Tspaz.com to support the show. Next up, remember, we just talked about the TSP business directory yesterday. Uh, You can list your business. And if you list your business in the directory, you will get show mentions probably twice a year, maybe three times a year, depending on how many people use it. But today's supporter of the TSP Business Directory is New England Defensive Training. They provide NRA-certified instruction and training in self-defense in around Maine. Go to newenglandselfdefense.com to learn more. And if you want to advertise your business in our directory and get mentioned on the show for as little as five bucks per six months, less than a dollar a month, go to tspbiz.com and sign up. And please, please, folks. As you're trying to figure out what you need in your life, every once in a while, just cruise through the directory, click on some things and look, and if you do business, leave a review, tspbiz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. Now, remember when I read Alex Shrug's laundry list of stuff for the year 1900, Thomas Jefferson as president, the Panic of 18, 19, 20, 25, 37, 57, Black Friday, the First Great Depression, Ah! You know what it made me think of? We didn't start the fire, which is all about the 1900s which we're about to go into. Now, I've played this song before, but I thought this would be a great song to play today as we enter the 1900s in the history segment. And it would also let me tell you a little story about somebody. I've told this story before a couple times, but there's new people all the time, and not everybody listens to every episode. Sometimes people think I'm too hard on teachers. I'm hard on teachers that don't do their job, and I'm really hard on administrators that have made it impossible for teachers to do their job. And I don't look back to my school time with a lot of fondness for a lot of teachers, but there's a few. And some of them were actually really tough that I actually liked. I respected them. And some of them weren't really tough, but they were good. One, I don't even know if he's still teaching, but his name was Mr. Sikavich. And in 1989, when this song was released, I had Mr. Sikavich for 11th grade history. Mr. Sikavich ended up being investigated for a very strange reason. Too many students were getting A's. Students that got C's and D's in most of their classes went to this fairly advanced history class and ended up with an A. They thought Mr. Sakavich possibly, was cheating, making it too easy. And back then, you know, like every teacher didn't have the same test that they were told to use, teachers could create their own testing methodology. Well, this is how each section of Mr. Sakavich's class went. When you go into a new section, a new a new chapter, whatever you want to call it, he would give you 40 terms, 20 on one side, 20 on the other. Let's say from We Didn't Start the Fire, Rosenberg's H-bomb, something like that. And at the end of the section, when you took your, your test for that section, you'd have these two lists of words. And you would draw a line from Rosenberg's to H-bomb. I'm not saying that's what it was. I'm just giving you an example. Now, you would think, well, that's pretty easy, and maybe that's why all the A's were there. Oh, no, no, no. Then, since Rosenberg's, let's say, was the number one item on the list, on the, on the left side, there would be a line, and several lines open to you, and be say number one. And number one, you would have to write a sentence. And what I loved about Mr. Sakavich, he didn't judge your spelling or anything like that because it's a history class, so he judged your knowledge of history. And you would have to say, the reason Rosenberg's go with H-bomb is they were involved with espionage that led to disclosure of secrets about the atomic, uh, po- atomic research of the United States to the Soviet Union. And because of that, they were tried, convicted, and executed. Right? And you had to do that with each one. And you got... I think there was actually... If I think about it now, there were 50 terms, not 40. And each one, you could score two points on for 100%. And you got one point for the match and one point for the explanation. And this guy was handing out A's like they were Oreo cookies. And kids that were considered not very smart were getting A's. And when they checked him out... The people that checked him out couldn't pass a freaking test. But the kids could. Why? Because he was a damn good teacher. And he told a story of history. And he made it interesting. And what happened was this song came out. And I remember all of us were actually excited that we basically knew every single thing in this song. That's a teacher. And I knew another teacher... I won't name, but he was actually quoted in the yearbook talking about, you know, having to be entertaining and having to be engaging. And he didn't, I don't remember the quote, but he didn't like that. He was also somebody like Mr. Sakavich, who enjoyed doing it, but this guy didn't like the fact that he had to. He thought children should just be there to learn. No dumbass. Your job is to make them want to learn. Make them want to learn. Mr. Sakavich did that. He made this song more than just a song for us. I do see value in teachers, especially good ones. And sometimes it just takes a willingness and a desire and a passion for teaching. And like I advised our law enforcement officer today, if you don't have passion for what you're doing, you should go find something you have passion for. Life's too short to do it any other way. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. How you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't?